This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In her work, CIIS professor Janine Canty uses the lens of eco-psychology to show that the pervasive and extreme forms of narcissism we find in many modern societies are the result of alienation from the natural world. In her recent book, Returning the Self to Nature, Janine shares how we can move beyond a world that revolves around selfish and disconnected identity models and step into healthy relationships with ourselves, our communities, and our planet. In this episode, Janine is joined by Leslie Davenport, who is the program co-lead for the Climate Psychology Certificate at CIIS, for an inspiring conversation on visualizing and embodying the wild naturalness of being human, and how to gain skills to begin experiencing a courageous, pluralistic, and ecological self. This episode was recorded during a live online event on June 8th, 2022. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. to this rich conversation that we'll have tonight, we know that um, it's also about integrating experience and taking in information in different ways. So Janine, I, I hope you'd be willing to start us out with a practice from your book. I'm thinking of the one towards the beginning that's called rooting. And if you just sure. sort of gather together. I would love to. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I also want to acknowledge I'm um, coming in from, I live in outside in the foothills of Boulder, Colorado. So I do want to acknowledge that I'm on the ancestral lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute peoples. Um, so yeah, it's um, probably evening for most of us, but it could be a different time of the day when folks are um, watching, listening to this. So we'll um, just root right now. So um, I would uh, encourage everyone to get into a comfortable, uh, either seated position, whether you're on a chair or um, you can sit on the floor, a cushion. Um, but it, it's also perfectly fine to stand up if that's um, what's calling to you in, in the moment. And uh, just get. Uh, grounded and we'll get a bit grounded and what I will encourage you to do is that you can make your eyes soft or you could also close your eyes. Um, I tend to keep my eyes a little bit open um, but anyway is fine but if you do have your eyes soft um, keep them soft without staring at anything or anyone and uh, you can even close your eyes. And then let your body be heavy. Let your legs, your sit bones, your feet, your arms, everything to relax and to feel supported. 
supported by the ground below you. I like to make contact with my feet on the ground in some manner. I'm taking a deep breath. Imagine that you have deep roots that form from the base of your sit bones, your seat that plunge deep into the earth, uh, whether through the carpet or the floor below, through any stories at levels, through the cement, eventually finding rich earth. And allow your belly to be soft and begin taking some really deep breaths that come deep in your belly and start to generate heat. Let your inhales and your exhales be deep. Taking in cleansing air. Notice your posture and let your torso be upright. Elongate your neck and slightly tuck your chin. Relax your mouth and your jaw. And uh, you might even want to stretch out your mouth and even stick out your tongue for a moment. Relaxing your face. Relax your eyes once more. And then just as you imagine that you have roots plunging below you into the rich earth, imagine that from the crown of your head, you have long branches that are reaching towards the sky that mirror your roots below. Taking those deep breaths. Notice if there are any areas of pain or discomfort in your body. And taking a deep breath, send your breath to all of these spaces. And then touch into your heart. And notice if there's a dominant emotion that's arising for you. Don't spend too much time thinking about the emotion. Just be with it and silently name this emotion. Honoring it and really acknowledging that this feeling is just one of many lenses that you're experiencing right now. And breathing, we'll sit in silence for a moment or two. And then gently come back to your surroundings. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking me to uh, share that, Leslie. So beautiful, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be great to hear even a little more about your background and especially what led you to write this book that's coming out on narcissism and returning the self to nature. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's so hard, as, especially I think as um, we get older to like, oh, what is my background? Um, but I guess in a short snapshot, and I think a lot of my um, kind of stories, my life stories have intersected around um, being a person of color in the U.S. I identify as um, African-American, Black, multicultural. Um, I have a kind of a bricolage of cultural background. So I've always been very aware of social um, injustice, social justice issues. And at the same time, I've been really um, always found um, kind of nourishment, comfort, guidance with my experiences with nature, um, the more than human world. And those things are so related and intersect. And so as a young person, I definitely had just a lot of questions of um, particularly with race issues that why were adults so kind of cruel or, um, you know, what was wrong with the world uh, as I was witnessing um, so much social stratification and uh, suffering. And as I started um, exploring that more and um, in studies, and I just really uh, started to link that with a lot of ecological issues, particularly with my um, educational pathways and kind of the um, surroundings that I found myself in. And that's a whole, you know, bigger, bigger story. Um, in terms of the book, and I'll, I'll hold up, I have an advanced copy from my publisher. It's not the full um, piece, but it's cool just to actually see the cover <laughs> or the, uh, yeah. And so it's called Returning the Self to Nature and Doing Our Collective Narcissism and Healing Our Planet. And uh, I had a um, personal encounter with someone who um, could probably be labeled as a narcissist, um, although really, and I know you know this as a um, um, licensed uh, clinical psychologist, that um, only someone of that caliber and that background could actually diagnose um, who is a narcissist. And even with that level of training, it's a really hard condition to diagnose. Uh, but I found myself, um, well, unjarred by my experience, but also really um, perplexed and curious because uh, within the larger landscape of our society at that time, and definitely in present, narcissism is such a buzzword. And I found that um, the kind of mainstream information and also the research was fascinating and also really sad because uh, it's um, classified as such a personal affliction. And that if you have an encounter with a narcissist, the best thing to do is to just cut them out of your life. And I definitely come from a both professional and also spiritual background where if one person's suffering, it's actually a reflection of our larger community. And I recalled in a lot of the uh, early eco-psychology literature, um, particularly with the work of um, um, Gomes and Kenner, Mary Kenner and um, Alan Kenner and Mary Gomes, as well as others, um, the, and Christopher Lash, there was a little bit around uh, 
narcissism and linking it to our high levels of consumerism. And I started really connecting those links between um, the narcissism that we're seeing in our current society um, as a social pathology and how it was really a collective, a collective endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, one thing I really appreciated in your book is how nuanced you really get about narcissism, that there's so mm-hmm. many flavors, you know, whether or not they're, you know, all named in something like the DSM, but, you know, you talk about versions that we all have and covert versions and really extreme malignant versions, and then moving into this collective area. Can you uh, maybe shine even a little more light on some of those different aspects, types of narcissism? Oh, sure. And uh, yeah, hopefully what I say will make make sense uh, even to me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, and it is fascinating. I spent so much time researching just the um, condition of narcissism. And there is so much both kind of in pop culture and then um, more academic scholarship and not all of it aligns. And I think it's going to be an area that we just keep um, surfacing and it's going to look very different um, in terms of diagnosis and treatment and um, all of the literature in the future. But um, well, to start with healthy narcissism, because people use the word narcissism and um, it's immediately thought of as a bad thing. And there's um, particularly, I think um, there's uh, Craig Malkin does work in terms of looking at the narcissistic spectrum, where if it was a scale of one to 10, you know, really we want to be kind of in the four to six range. So everyone should have a healthy sense of ego, um, you know, really um, showing up, being having self-love, being able to express themselves and um, yeah, feeling their unique identity. Um, but And then we obviously don't want to be on the very low scale with um, little to no self-esteem, but we don't want to be at the extreme level. And at the extreme level is where you would find um, the category of narcissistic personality disorder, which is also um, uh, um, usually called NPD. And that's where you have kind of a whole categories of different um, narcissists. And it is uh, one of several cluster B disorders, but um, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, is the only one that, um, from my understanding, isn't uh, genetic. And we may find more about that in the future. And there are some people that say it does have a biological component, but in general, it uh, surfaces from um, basically early childhood and um, faulty um, uh, caregiving by primary caregivers and a child not developing a healthy sense of esteem. And so within those um, MPD category, there's um, a slew of different kind of characteristics, types of narcissism from, uh, gosh, there's so many, there's like a malignant, there's um, more of an covert or introverted narcissist, 
Um, one of the ones that I find kind of interesting is there's a communal narcissist, and that's actually someone who could be like a do-giver, uh, do-gooder, um, really service-oriented, but it's just doing that because it, um, you know, they feel good about themselves, and um, and yeah, so and that's. I think a very small percent of the narcissist. So there's all sorts of um, categories with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've spoken to it a little bit already, but I think it's really worth going into more deeply that even though narcissism can be extremely damaging to other people, and we'll talk more about the environment, you also have this... Um, kind of compassionate lens, you know, like you said, the advice is just to cut people off. And yet you're recognizing that it's emerging from a place of pain and that, you know, just to cut that off isn't really a healing response or kind of what it takes to shift things in the direction they need to go, especially because of this larger collective component. So... Maybe can you, I don't know, say more about that. On the one hand, what's a healthy boundary, right? Because we need that around, yeah. you know, certain people and yet not to banish, not to banish. Yeah. Gosh, and there's there's so much right in that question. So you might have to um, jostle me if I forget a part of it because I so much comes up for me in my um I guess back to my own experience with a narcissist or someone who could be labeled as a narcissist. One of the um, saddest parts I found was that I realized that people in my community um, knew about kind of the dangers of this uh, person. And um, there was a uh, narcissist can be really um, damaging to not only one's self-esteem, sometimes even one's safety, um, kind of like can alienate you from loved ones, so many different, um, and we'll talk about, I think, probably some of the traits of uh, someone with narcissistic personality disorder. And so what happens if um, you look at a lot of the literature, people will talk about the victims of a narcissist. And what happens is a narcissist will actually cycle through different people, almost like um, satiating their need, and then they'll toss a person away. And sometimes they'll come back and try to pick that up. And um, so it can be a cycle of damage. And um, often the, you know, someone say you should definitely break ties with that person. But when that happens, they're also going to be then looking for their next um, kind of source of feeding. And so there was a sadness that um, if I um, cut off from a narcissist, it's actually now I'm kind of, it's almost like a gnat in my backyard situation. I'm uh, you know, putting it onto someone else is now ha- gonna have to deal with this person. And I think about how many people in the, um, you know, in our U.S. society, but worldwide, this is happening. And that seemed um, really maddening. And then in the more compassionate framework, which is what I'm really more um, 
uh, care about is that it is uh, someone who has narcissistic personality or extreme narcissism is uh, someone who has had a lot of trauma and damage, particularly as a child. And so to um, really demonize this person isn't recognizing that they have these really deep wounds that uh, need to be um, attended to. And maybe it's not a one-on-one attending, but we have to look at our larger society that we, um, a lot of the research says that we're having increasing numbers of narcissists. And so that means we're having increasing numbers of damaged children. Um, and so, and I mean, we can link that to so many things. We're seeing young people um, with so so much rage, so much suffering, so much pain um, that's being put out into the larger society and not just on themselves. Um, so I, yeah, I remember the um, recently passed uh, wisdom holder, uh, Maladome Some would talk about how if um, someone in a community is ill, uh, it's not about that person, it's about the larger society. So instead of making this uh, one person or all these separate narcissists, we need to look at what is this saying about our larger society, our communities. Yeah, I want to pick up on a thread of something you said about, um, you know, a classic narcissist sort of uses people. They're a form of food almost. I I don't remember what word you use, but it's like food. And there's a real dehumanizing aspect to that. And that I think is a really good segue to the intersectionality around narcissism and the environment, narcissism and racism, narcissism and whiteness. Um, and so do you want to begin to connect some of uh, that? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, ooh, uh, that's, a, that's a lot right there. And uh, yeah. And I've got, um, yes, there's, yeah, so, and I'll maybe just start with some basics. It's probably, um, it's helpful just to know some of the traits of what um, someone who's a kind of classic narcissist, someone with narcissistic personality, and these are some just sweeping patterns, but uh, this would be someone who's got this grandiose sense of self, comes off very arrogant, um, has very low empathy for others, uh, like literally um, has trouble um, reading the emotional um, um, levels, um, cues from others. And even when they may come across, they're not really that concerned on what's going on with others. It's kind of like you. all of us probably have that Um, family member or a friend who maybe you see them or you talk on the phone and um, they don't ask you at all about yourself or if you bring up something about themselves, they redirect the conversation because it's not an interesting conversation unless it's about them. And then another um, trait is that um, just kind of shamelessness. 
this feeling that they just can't do anything wrong. They're just kind of perfect. And if something is a problem, it needs to be about the other people and not them. And then there's kind of a um, kind of switch in terms of patterns, because there's also a key pattern is a fragile ego. And so this really deep rooted insecurity Another trait is um, a hypersensitivity to critique. If you um, critique a narcissist, um, often they'll get really angry, um, you know, even rage, get into um, bouts of rage, um, refute it. Um, yeah. And then there's the last, um, you know, general pattern is just this over overall constant need to feel more special than others. And so not just special, um, we should all feel special, but more special than others. So this hierarchical category, and it's like every day is your birthday and you're the only person that can have a birthday. <laughs> and so when we um, connect this to collective narcissism. It's uh, really looking at that. Um, and I'm very US centric. So I'm really speaking from what I um, witness and experience as a person living in the US. And this uh, translates also more to a lot of Western and consumer driven societies. Uh, we shift narcissism from the individual to our um, larger society and really looking at the way that we're treating the earth with collective narcissism. We, we're in this um, society of self-centeredness. We have these traits of fierce individualism that has been part of the story of being, you know, American, um, this constant vanity, consumerism, success-driven, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, the ladder of success. Everyone can be um, a millionaire if you just work hard enough, which obviously is not true. But this hyper um, competitiveness, a constant need to feel special, uh, more special than in this like other countries, like we're number one. Uh, and so looking at that and then in as we were talking about with narcissistic personality disorder on the individual level, it happens when a person has in their early childhood, primary caregivers that are not really doing their jobs. They're not giving supportive relationships to that child. And there's two faulty patterns that uh, people talk about in terms of object relations theory. And one is um, when there's too much attention given to the child in a way that the child needs to be hyper vigilant to the um, adult's needs rather than their own. And so that's one pattern. And then there's another pattern where the adult um, doesn't give um, no, barely any attention to the child. And so the child is left um, needing attention, needing to be seen and not being. And so both of those patterns really um, result in a sense of, not a sense, an actual damaged trust within the, um, the, the young person, the child, the developing child. And so with having that damaged trust in the world, 
the um, child replaces their kind of reality and constructs like a bubble reality that makes them feel safe. And so they're um, really in this kind of false constructed reality. And so when I look at it at the collective level, um, instead of having the primary caregiver as um, a parent or some sort of relative, some sort of adult, um, in our society, our primary caregiver has really shifted authority to global corporate culture, where um, that's so much of our dominant worldview of, um, you know, always having a, a successful um, bank account, all of this uh, ever-increasing GDP of the um, United States, of, um, you know, corporations now have can um, classify as individuals, um, all of these things that we've really pledged our allegiance to um, unbridled uh, consumerism and commerce and capitalism in a really detrimental way. And so with that, instead of having these kind of community relationships in the work I do with eco-psychology, we look so much about the damage that's happening to each, pretty much each and every one of us through our separation from nature, through those rites of passage of being connected to um, land, to communities. And now we've shifted and given that authority to this global corporate culture. And even if we don't believe that, we're constantly bombarded with messages from our um, ads on our cell phones, our iPads, just, you know, um, wherever we go, there's all of these things that keep us hyper vigilant to this larger thing of like, do I look, do I look good enough? Do I have the right clothes? Do I have the right job? Do I have the right um, family members, the right, um, so many different things. Am I the right size? Do I have the right shoes, all of these things. And so we're so outward focused on these material and very superficial things that we um, are living in a way that we're so hyper vigilant to these other things that we've forsaken the most um, precious and also most important responsibilities that we have. And so living in the society where we need like the best, the highest, the most, um, we're constantly in this kind of um, hierarchical and competitive nature and we become overly prideful and arrogant and um, it's cycles and cycles. And so we end up living in this kind of false reality where we're so hyper-focused on the, um, what other people think of us or this image that we're, you know, constant selfie of who we think we're presenting to the world, that we have such little time to think about our fellow humans and in particularly about our, about the earth and all living beings. We've really dropped the ball on our responsibilities to uh, the larger world. And I would really like to, um, I know I can keep going on and on, but one thing that, uh, there's so many different things, 
But uh, I was so excited to have this opportunity to uh, connect with you, Leslie, when you first reached out to me about uh, doing some teaching in your climate uh, psychology uh, certificate that's starting this fall. Uh, we didn't know each other, but you didn't know that I had um, read your book, Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, uh, some years ago. And one of the communities that you um, spotlight, Jamestown, Colorado, is right near where I live. And I was deeply affected by the flood. And I've used some of your work in my eco-psychology classes for a year. So it's like, oh, I'm so excited. So um, I wonder if I could ask you a question. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Okay. And uh, yeah, so, well, in your, the book that I mentioned, The Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, uh, you've really done all of this work uh, studying different communities that have experienced climate change disasters, um, including the one I mentioned um, near my community. And you use this term emotional resiliency. And I wonder um, what this means. Uh, well, I know a little bit, but if you could share what it means and what you've been learning from these communities. Sure, sure. Well, emotional resiliency is getting a new definition in the face of climate change because the conventional meaning and what you'd still find most often if you look it up on the internet is the ability to bounce back from a, a stressful life event like the floods or fires or any, any number of things and how quickly can we get back to our baseline but with climate change we are we're, there's no baseline in the sense that we're on this moving trajectory right the ground is shifting under our feet there's going to be more difficulties that we all need to face uh, and learn how to be with as we do our part toward creating a more just safe world um, so i i'm call i'm saying now that emotional resiliency is cultivating the capacity to be empathetic clear-minded and present in the face of growing distress. Because, you know, it's, it's part of how our nervous system is built that when stress is high, it actually kicks us out of our reasoning mind. We can't modulate the same way. We get really reactive or we drop out and dissociate and want to numb out and check out. And uh, until we learn these, you know, more tools, more ways to regulate and remain present with each other's suffering, with each other's pain. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying about narcissism too, is we, you know, there's this tendency to like cut things out, but what does it require of us to be, um, a little more open-minded, a little more open-hearted, a little more grounded, <laughs> and take on the task of this stretch self. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love your work and yeah, these intersections. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is so essential uh, just to keep naming, and that's something that comes up a lot in 
eco psychology is that um, with so many of these, you know, traumas in the past, it's been such a like a personal thing, and it was a trauma. Um, hopefully, it ended, and now we're doing the healing. But in this era of climate change, and and I think both of us, when we're talking about climate change, it's what's happening to the earth, but it's also all of these collective injustices and traumas. And um, even we can, you know, talk about the bring in the role of the pandemic into that and these wars that are going on, that there's no like it started and ended. Um, it's still happening. And we don't know, you know, probably in our lifetimes it's not going to end, but this emotional resiliency that you're talking about, it is a community, um, these resourcing, but it um, requires so much of being able to stay with our emotions and, and also having so many means of um, resources and support and connecting uh, with one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, uh, it ties in so well to what you were talking about of this split with narcissism between losing touch with a more authentic self, which is by its nature, you know, connected to everyone, to everything, versus the scrolled self, which is kind of like instead of looking out or connecting out, it's like this mirror that bounces back at the person, right? So it's it blind it even blinds us to sort of behold who we're with or yeah. where we are. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a central um, factor within narcissism is this um, false self, and it's got so many different kind of um, nuances depending on whether it's being spoken about within clinical psychology or eco-psychology or, um, but so much of it is what you're talking about is this creation of almost like a um, plastic self where everything's um, always okay, um, but there's this constant numbness um, because it's a protective shell. And um, a lot of kind of Buddhist traditions, um, we talk about uh, cocoon, um, this kind of um, staying in the safe space and not being able to peer out because it's just too painful. And while probably most of us don't, um, may not be able to see how we have false selves, we can kind of start unraveling that a bit. And, you know, so many people like can't handle like the news or um, listening to viewpoints that are different than their own or um, feeling their emotions or being in one's body or even within uh, the eco-psychology and um, climate psychology worlds, like being in nature, getting, you know, dirty, being porous, like so many experiences. And with a narcissist, it's so much about control because if we, one lets um, that false self crumble, then um, the, you know, chaos might ensue, um, yet it can be really joyful chaos and, um, a place where we suddenly start having all sorts of, um, 
interactions and healing and new capacities. Uh, one of the antidotes um, to the false self is developing one's ecological self, which we all need to be doing. And probably most of us uh, watching right now or in this space are doing. And that's when we really start developing um, affection and bonds to, to um, beings within nature. And so maybe it's a bird outside or a, a special um, body of water or um, being in a rain shower, um, just having those bonds and starting to step beyond our like small ego selves and kind of peering out and be like, oh, um, and then as we start peeling back kind of like the layers, we start um, developing our multicultural selves or more transpersonal selves. Like there's so many levels of self and that's so much about the healing work that we need to be doing right now. Yes. And, you know, part of the way I think of what you're describing is, you know, we, our Western culture really identifies with being um, rational, in control decision makers, you know, and that's such a, a small part, right? There's these unconscious things that bubble up. There's a different kind of knowing that happens when you're in your ecological self and connected with nature. And so much of what you've spoken about of community or communal wisdom and the, even the self-regulation that happens the way our they're, they're discovering our nervous systems sync up with each other. Um, very similar to the way that the root systems um, underground of a forest are spreading uh, in this, you know, invisible yeah. way. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, we start to remember that, um, yeah, our, we're always, uh, interdependent or uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says interbeing like um, uh, no man no man no woman no being is an island on itself or maybe we are we're an ecosystem uh, so we're always interacting and our um, sense of self is connected and embedded in these other beings um, I love when we get really philosophical and this idea like, well, there is no self. Because if you said, you know, like, what part of me is just me? Like nothing, because I can't um, exist without air and water and warmth and so many. Yeah, we're living systems. <laughs> you know, you're, uh, you're speaking to it already, but is there more you can say to you know, kind of what it takes to turn things around. You know, you describe this growing narcissism and I think it is easy to see and the way you described it playing out uh, in our society mm -hmm. collectively yeah. and damaging the earth. And you know, what, what do we, what can we each do? And what, what, what do we need to do to engage the healing path? Sure, yeah, yeah, that's funny as you're, saying that too I realized when we were talking before I never even got into like the connection between narcissism and racism which I write about a lot in the book and there's there's so much in terms of the kind of breakdown of all of the isms around collective narcissism and how they play out 
but yeah, I do want to shift into um, some of the um, kind of healing around that because it's so important. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think something in terms of healing is that there's, uh, you know, there's no um, one size fits all. Everyone's healing path is going to be different and um, healing, I believe, is dynamic, it's collective, it's systemic. Um, uh, there's so many different pieces with that. Um, and it's, um, yeah, there's no one size fits all. So within this, I have um, things that I offer. And I know um, I'll, I'll ask you about this after I talk, because um, you have some wonderful offerings around this as well. Uh, and I think our work, there's so much overlap with these pieces around healing and um, tools and skillfulness. Uh, definitely the, we've talked about the attending to our emotions and there's so many, um, the, the work of Joanna Macy and Miriam Greenspan and Pema Chodron and so many folks, um, but just that importance of honoring what's actually surfing surfacing for us instead of trying to um, either suppress it or just make it better that the pathway you know the, the pathway is through feeling our emotions I'm at the beginning of um, the our conversation you were we were talking about the kind of narcissistic scale or spectrum and the importance of actually having levels of narcissism. So another um, pattern there is just the importance of loving ourselves. So many people within our society and probably all of us at, at certain points or, you know, even everyday moments have these kind of negative thoughts about ourselves and these kind of constant critics and critiques. And we forget the importance of really um, having self-love, being um, having gratitude and appreciation for our capacities, our goodness, our abilities to show up for so many different things. And uh, it's so easy to lose that. So we want to uh, honor our uniqueness and our specialness, um, but just not in a way that we think we're more special than others. Uh, definitely the work with mindfulness is um, so important. I think um, having a meditation practice or, you know, going out and walking in silence. Um, there's so many different doing yoga, uh, you know, just even mindfully, whether we're cleaning our houses or, um, you know, doing service, just being mindful about it. And uh, another one I talked about earlier was that developing our ecological selves. And um, of course, enlarging our compassion towards others. Um, when we're so caught up in the me, 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 or even the self-critique, um, it's a great practice to just turn out, like, how can I be useful? How can I make someone else have a better day-to-day? -day? How can I be of service? And then the last piece um, that I think is so important um, is this idea of race. 
And that's the opening up to something greater than our really small sense of self. And it gets a little like, Ooh, what are you talking about? Um, I think probably folks that are in this space um, are probably more um, aligned with being spiritual beings and whether it's um, religion or spiritual, but not religion, um, but just being able to um, recognize that there's something much bigger than um, the human world. And also there's something bigger than just even the visible material world and being able to drop into that and uh, really having some uh, guidance there. So um, I really would love to, before we, um, uh, for you to talk a little bit about um, the components in your work that bring about the healing. And I know you do a lot about um, grief and all sorts of tools. So I would love for you to share that because it's just so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I think you were describing this earlier as you speak, I have about, you know, 10 things going off at one. <laughs> I think we're so aligned in this. Um, well, you know, what you were just describing around, uh, you know, how to access wonder and joy as being core human capacities and human experiences. Um, and we've got these complex emotions too, right? That come out of, like you said, early childhood wounding or experiences we encounter through our life. And so it's it's mm -hmm. such a both and, right? You know, to, to not do, and, and I appreciate the way you bring the emotions in, not to do a spiritual bypassing that it's only okay, right? To be... To feel certain things and there's emotions we want to avoid but that you know especially in the face of climate change you know there's so much now talk about eco-anxiety eco-grief uh, rage frustration uh despair uh dread um not because there's anything wrong with us in feeling those things or those emotions are wrong but because if we are empathetic and care and pay attention to the damage that's happening that's how we respond you know yeah. and and we don't want to just feel under the weight of that all the time we've talked about skillfulness too but how to at least begin by honoring you know that's us hearing the pain of the earth the pain of people um, the non-human world. I mean, the whole thing that's rippling uh, through us, through those interconnectedness. Um, and so to really be um, tender and validating toward these really difficult feelings. And, um, and that that is part of, you know, this larger picture that also includes this essential life force and joy and that our, our joy is doesn't have to be dependent on things getting solved you know uh, that it's also has its own sovereignty in a way yeah yeah that's <laughs> so, yeah 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 there's such um what you're talking about uh i think invokes so much tenderness too uh 
when you're talking about eco-anxiety and, uh, you know, we can spread that to just like the general anxiety, um, probably most of us are feeling right now. And uh, sometimes it's like, oh, uh, there's no pinpoint of why. And so it's like, well, you know, I've got, you know, everything's working in my body or, you know, um, you know, what's going on. And I think in uh, kind of mainstream psychology, it's, well, and, you know, what's your relationship with your father or your, you know, your mother or um, that it needs to be a personal thing rather than now we're really waking up and realizing how um, bound up we are together and how interdependent. And so that um, kind of fine sensitivity that um, so many of us are aware of now. It's um, for me, it's just kind of beautiful that we're um, feeling like the anxiousness and the pain and the sadness because it's so deeply rooted in love and caring. And when we can like actually um, name that, see that and start engaging with one another, that actually turns into something really beautiful and something that can be held um, because we see that we're not alone. Oh, this isn't about some personal pathology. Like what's going on in the world is validly um, tragic and painful and alarming. And I'm awake and alert and I'm, I'm ready to attend to this. Gosh. Well, um, I, yeah, I just want to, um, um, express my um, gratitude uh, to be in conversation and just connection and community with uh, you. It's definitely bringing me a lot of joy. And I just, yeah, I feel, um, yeah, I just feel so deeply honored and obviously honored with um, our larger circles and community. And I'm really looking forward to um deepening our connection this fall with being part of um, your climate psychology certificate and then also yeah attending to just the greater work and joy yeah (laughs) thank you and I feel exactly the same way so grateful for this conversation Mm -hmm. tonight and that we do have these ways of working together coming up as well and thanks to all Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.